This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Bill Russell, one of the most iconic players in pro basketball history, died Sunday at the age of 88. Russell was a big man who was the game's first noted shot blocker, and his rebounding and passing made him the ultimate team player. He led the Boston Celtics to eight straight NBA titles, 11 in all in his 13 seasons. He was a five-time league most valuable player. In 1967, Russell became the NBA's first African-American head coach when he replaced Celtics coach Red Auerbach. Russell served as a player coach for three years. Russell had an uneasy relationship with Boston fans. In 1987, his daughter wrote an essay detailing the racism Russell had faced, including racist vandalism visited upon the family home in 1960. Russell refused to sign autographs, and when his number was retired by the team in 1972, he insisted it be at a private ceremony at the Boston Garden. Russell was also active on civil rights issues. He joined the 1963 March on Washington and was in the front row for Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. He went to Mississippi after civil rights leader Medgar Evers was murdered. In 2011, President Barack Obama awarded Russell the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Terry spoke to Bill Russell in 2001 when he'd published a book called Russell Rules, 11 Lessons on Leadership. Russell began by talking about how the Celtics developed defensive skills among their players. We had a drill that we would put our hands out in front and move them away. Uh, left hand would go to left and right hand would go right and see how long, how far you could take them and still see them, both at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you see, so that um, if I'm in the right position using my peripheral vision, about 90% of the time I can see all 10 players and the two or three referees. Well, well, let me put this into play for a second. Say, I mean, you led the NBA in in rebounding for several seasons. Say you're getting a ball on the rebound and you're using your peripheral vision to see where the rest of your team is so you can figure out who to tap the ball to. Um, tell me what's going through your mind, what, what you're doing physically and mentally on this rebound. Well, well first of all, uh, to get the rebound, uh, I try to get the position before the shot's taken. You see, if you watch a player, see, you have to count on players being good, first of all. And one of the things that make you good is consistency. So, uh, so when I say, for example, I see Jerry West setting Casey up to take a jump shot from the right side. Well, I know most of the time, if he misses, where the rebound's going to go because he's consistent. I have to count on his greatness. So I start going to where his misses go. Okay, now, when he misses, I get a rebound. I've collaborated with Kuzi or Casey, whoever my point guard is. When the shot's taken, they're to go to an open spot, either on the left side or the right side, which we've, talked about before and so using my peripheral vision as I as I make sure I got the rebound first and then I look out of the corner of my eye and if we're at home I look for white uniform in that spot just the white mm-hmm. the color or if we're on the road I look for the green and so all I know is I see that green just this the color I, I, I don't have time to focus focus in so that I see the whole person and then I just, uh, most of the time before I landed, I would have passed the ball to that uh, uniform. And that would start our fast break. 
There's only one problem with that, though. Yeah. I don't get to shoot very much. <laughs> because by the time I get to the top of the key from the defense, Casey or Coos, they've gotten one of the guys a shot. Because we, uh, we used to get a shot uh, when I was having a good rebounding night. Uh, defensively, we were shooting um, most time within six seconds. And they didn't wait for me. <laughs> and every player likes to shoot. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to uh, blocking your your greatest opponent, which was Will Chamberlain. He was five inches taller than you were. Now, you had the ability to jump. Um, how did you use jumping and anything else that, that you could do uh, to, to block Chamberlain? Well, um, one of the things that I learned, uh, maybe in high school or in college, that when people shoot jump shots, for example, or most of the shots now, very rarely do people shoot uh, standing still without jumping. Now they shoot, uh, sometimes they shoot a three-pointer without jumping, but most of the shots are, are jump shots. Well, when you jump to shoot, you cannot jump as high as you can. Because if you do, you won't be able to shoot at the end of the, at the height. Because to see the shot starts in your feet and flows up through your body and leaves on your fingertips. They may sound a little esoteric, but it's the truth. <laughs> and so most guys that are good jumpers will jump as high as they, uh, maybe as half as high as they can jump when they shoot offensively. Mm-hmm. The defensive player is not under those constraints. He can jump as high as he possibly can because he doesn't have to shoot at the end of the jump. And so um, when Wilt would take his jump, his fadeaway jump shot, first of all, I was left-handed. And so I didn't have to reach across my body to get to his right hand. So I picked up three inches right there. Then I could jump as high as I possibly can. He's limited to how he can jump. So I pick up another three inches. So now I'm up with the ball. Now, but with him, if I did that too often, that would not be an intelligent thing for me to do. Because of, with all his physical talents, he was also very, very smart. And so if you did something to stop him what he wanted to do, he would make adjustments. And you did not want him to make an adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> so what I would do sometimes is, rather than try to block the shot, is when he's setting up for the shot, push him another two inches away from the basket. That changes the angle. It's very, very minute, but it changes the angle. And so he's shooting from a different angle. And... That would throw off the shots half of the time. And so he's shooting, and he's making some, and he's missing some. But he, uh, I want him to have the thought that it's just because he's just shooting, not shooting good. Not that I was harassing him. Because <laughs> I didn't want him to ever think that I was harassing him. Because uh, that would not be a good idea. No, it, it sounds to me that you take a very uh, analytical approach to the game. Well, I wouldn't wouldn't put it all like intelligence. <laughs> you got to remember now. This is 
not rocket science. <laughs> this is this is a game that kids play. <laughs> In the days when you and Will Chamberlain were were playing, and and part of your job was to prevent him from scoring. Could you have become friends with him off the court? I mean, would you ever hang out together? Or was it best for you t- to not really get to know him as a friend and as a person so that you could just be more kind of cold and calculating on the court and, and not? Well, a couple things. First of all, I never tried to stop him from scoring. That would be a bad idea because, first of all, I'd be doomed to failure. <laughs> it's, to stop him from scoring, that wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. What my uh, ambition was to make him less efficient. Say, if he's got 45 points. Oh, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, stop him from scoring as him, much. Yeah, yeah, that's what I right. meant. Yeah. If he gets 45 <laughs> points, if it took him 40 shots, then I've had a good night. Right. You understand me? Yes. Okay. Uh, as for friends, uh, for five or six years, we had a Thanksgiving night game in Philadelphia at Convention Hall. You know where that is? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, in the middle of the afternoon, Wilt would come to the hotel, pick me up, and we'd go to his house. You know, he came from a large family, six or seven kids, you know. And I would have Thanksgiving dinner with his mother and father and his sisters and brothers. And, and then his mother, bless her, would let me go and get in his bed and take a nap. And then we go to the game and just kick the hell out of each other. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that was okay, huh? It didn't, it didn't prevent, it didn't like uh, inhibit your ability to kick the hell out of him after, you know, his mother made you Thanksgiving dinner. No, and it didn't bother him either. He didn't mind kicking the hell out of me. In fact, <laughs> one, of those, <laughs> one of those nights he got 55 rebounds. Right. Against us. And so he, he had no, he was not inhibited in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Because, you know, when we got on the court, we were uh, determined to outplay each other. Right. Now, the outplaying each other was for him to do what he did for his team as well as possible. And for me to do what I did for my team as well as possible, which were two different things. That's why... Uh, I never, and 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 he agreed. We never considered each other rivals. We considered each other competitors, because in rivalry, one guy beats the other guy. In competitiveness, um, we were both enormously successful. Now, you you were Boston's first African American star athlete, and I think when you joined the Celtics, I think you were the only African American on the team for a short while. Is that right? Just for one year. You know, it's funny is that uh, with the Celtics, yeah, within the organization, that was never an issue. What about outside the organization in Boston? Well, at that time in the United States of America, that was very difficult. What now, year are we talking, talking about? What year did you join? I joined 56, 57 season. Mm-hmm. Now, this was like, Seven, uh, seven years before the first, that 64 Civil Rights Act and before the Brown versus uh, School Board. Uh, this is before all those things. And in this country at that time, it was very uncomfortable 
for uh, African Americans and in all walks of life. What made Boston unique was that in Roxbury, over 90% of the African Americans lived within two or three miles of each other. But that was also true in the North End with the Italians. And it's also true in Southie with the uh, Irish Catholics. And then, uh, then there was Brookline with the Brahmins. And there was a, a phrase they used to use that the, the Cabots only talked to the Lodges and the Lodges only talked to God. Right. <laughs> and, so, so, and, so, and then you had the Jewish community. And so all these communities were separate. And they were equally mean to everybody. <laughs> you know, and so it was like, it was more than just a race thing. It was also a cultural and religious thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and, and I uh, spoke about it. But I, I'll say this. The only reason I spoke about it in Boston was that's where I was living. You understand? I wasn't in San Francisco talking about Boston. I wasn't in Cleveland talking about Boston. I was in Boston talking about Boston. You understand? Yeah. No. What about the fans when you were playing? Did you feel that the fans in Boston were with you, or did you feel that like white fans were uncomfortable rooting for a black player? Oh, to to a certain degree, and that still exists. What happened is, uh, for example, my second year in the league. I was the most valuable player. And uh, in those days, the MVP was picked by the players. So my peers picked me as the most valuable player in the league. The all-league team was picked by the writers. I was second team, all-league. So now, with my peers, I was the best player playing. But with the writers... I was the sixth or seventh best player playing. And and so the fans, uh, which quite understandably, they said that's you know, that's that's the way it is. You know. Um I'd always played to try to win every game. Because I had found in earlier in my life that these awards and things were extremely political. That's a polite way of saying it. And I, I would never let people that really don't know what's going on define to me or assign to me a place in history. Right. Not that, that I would accept. You understand me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that I have a sense of self that I know what I did, how I did it, and what I accomplished. Um, Here's a really uh, important question. Um, How do you feel about uh, the longer, baggier shorts (laughs) that players wore today compared to the (laughs) shorter, tighter ones that players wore in your day? Well, uh, well, see, when we were young and and energetic uh, and the young ladies could see our thighs, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we thought that was very attractive. <laughs> but do you know how that sh- the long shorts came to be? Uh, no, no, I don't. 
Well, that's another thing we can thank by a good friend, uh, Michael Jordan. What happened was when he went to the Bulls, now this is the story that I've been told. When he went to the Bulls, he was, like all of us, he had some superstitions. So what he did was he wore his North Carolina, Carolina blue and white shorts under his Bulls shorts. And so every time he'd fall or go do something like that, you could see that blue underneath. Well, from what I hear, the commissioner called and says, hey, listen, that's out of uniform. You cannot have that showing. So rather than stop wearing his shorts, he had his bull shorts made longer. So they would cover up the blue. And so when Michael starts wearing longer shorts, and Michael was the man. And so everybody started wearing it. Hey, if Michael's wearing them, it's good enough for him. If that works for him, maybe I'll try it. Might help. And so all these guys are getting longer and longer shorts. But they have a, a limit, you know, on how close they can be to their knees and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's, I just think it's amusing as heck, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then as a, you know, in this culture, we have a hair thing, you know. It's like when Bill Walton was really playing great at Portland, he wore a ponytail and a beard. And oh, people up at arms about that, you know. Athletes are not supposed to do that. That's for the hippies, you know. And then when I was a rookie, uh, I hadn't started shaving, so I had a beard. And you have no idea how much conversation about the beard, which had nothing to do with anything. And and now these guys are 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 wearing these they call cornrows. And um, and and the white guys can't do that. But when I was playing, a lot of the white guys grew crew cuts. I couldn't do that. (laughs) 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 And so, you know, it's like, I just, it's just so funny to me when I see things that that people get upset about. Right, and how things go in and out of fashion. Yeah, yeah, you know. Bill Russell, one last question. Can you still jump? Do you have any reason to jump? Uh, I jump with joy sometimes because that's that's an integral part of my life. Uh, the, one of the first things I remember as a kid was running along and just jumping, just for the joy. I, I think jumping is really, really, really important part of our psyche. You, you can jump for many reasons, you know. And this is an expression. And so, now, I don't try to dunk anymore. I, I, I go for more pedestrian type of activities nowadays. So I'll, there's a place where I, if I have to get from one place to the other, I'd rather walk than run. So then when I get there, I can do whatever I want to do mm-hmm. instead of having to sit down and, <laughs> and rest for 10 minutes. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much for talking with us. Terry Gross. You have no idea what a thrill it is to converse with you. Hall of Fame basketball player Bill Russell speaking with Terry Gross in 2001. Russell died Sunday at the age of 88. 
Coming up, we remember musician and folklorist Mick Maloney, who revived long-forgotten Irish songs, and Can Tucker Review's Renaissance, Beyonce's first studio album in six years. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. Mick Maloney, a beloved musician and folklorist who revived centuries-old forgotten Irish songs, died last week at the age of 77 at his home in Manhattan. A colleague at New York University's Glucksman Ireland House, where Maloney taught, said upon hearing of Maloney's death, a great flame of musical joy and friendship has been extinguished. Maloney is credited with bringing traditional Irish music to a wider audience and with encouraging female instrumentalists in the male-dominated field of music. He sang and played guitar, mandolin, and banjo, and recorded or produced more than 70 albums of Irish music. Maloney was born in Ireland and emigrated to the U.S. In 1999, he received a National Heritage Award for his work in public folklore from the National Endowment for the Arts. Maloney was passionate about exploring connections between Irish, African, and American roots music. He wrote the book Far From the Shamrock Shore, the story of Irish-American immigration through song, which was accompanied by a CD of songs. We're going to listen to excerpts of two of his interviews with Terry Gross. The first was recorded in 2006, after the release of his album McNally's Row of Flats, which featured Irish-American songs of New York in the 1870s and 80s by the songwriting team Ed Harrigan and David Braham. Mick Maloney, welcome to Fresh Air. I'd like you to introduce the first track on the new CD, which is called McNally's Row of Flats. Would you describe this as an, one of the really early songs about city life in America? It is indeed one of the early songs about city life in America, and it comes out of the context of Lower East Side Manhattan, where Ed Harrigan lived along with David Braham. And this was a time in the early 1880s when this song was written, when Irish immigrants were living beside Italian immigrants, and they were also living beside African Americans and Chinese immigrants, Eastern European immigrants arriving, mostly Jewish from Russia and Ukraine. And the whole thing was a real multicultural mosaic, and this song gives a very good flavor of that. Okay, a song about multiculturalism long before anybody invented the word. (laughs) Here it is, McNally's Row of Flats. Down in Bottle Alley lived Timothy McNally, a decent politician and a gentleman at that. Beloved by all the ladies, the gossoons and the babies that occupy the building called McNally's Row of Flats. And it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany. Chinese and Africans and a paradise for rats All jumbled up together in the snow and rainy weather They constitute the tenants in McNally's row of flats That great conglomeration of men from every nation The Tower of Babylonium, it couldn't equal that A peculiar institution where the brogues without dilution they rattled on together in McNally's row of flats And it's Ireland and Italy, Jerusalem and Germany Chinese and Africans and a paradise for rats All jumbled up together in the snow and rainy weather They constitute the tenants in McNally's row of flats Would you just place us musically here? I mean, this is an era, we're talking like 
1870s to 1890s. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it kind of precedes Tin Pan Alley. It does, yes. So w- w- what are the entertainments of the time? Well, you, you, you would think of, of Gilbert and Sullivan around that era. That's the late 1870s. Actually, Harrigan um, and Braham started writing songs about six or seven years before Gilbert and Sullivan. Some of the songs have somewhat of the same feel to them. Of course, Gilbert and Sullivan go into opera and operetta and Harrigan and Braham and Hart, they stick with musical comedy, musical theatre. But say a song like, say, The Mulligan Guard, which was their first big hit. If you look at it, the sheet music, it will go something like this. We crave your condescension. We'll tell you what we know. From marching in the Mulligan Guard and the Sligo Ward below. Our captain's name was Hussey, a Tipperary man. He shouldered, he shouldered like a Russian duke whenever he took command. We shouldered guns and marched and marched away. From Baxter Street we marched to Avenue A. Our fives and drums so sweetly they did play as we marched, marched, marched in the Mulligan Guard. Now, when I went and listened to that in sheet music, it didn't sound like that much of a big deal. And I knew that it needed something uh, as a window into the past to make it more evocative of, of the, the, the original feel of the music in its context. This was the year of marching bands, of course. Uh, so I went to um, Vince Giordano, uh, who uh, has a band, the Nighthawks. They, they and, do swing tunes and early jazz. Yeah, early jazz. And uh, this was a little bit before his time. With, with him and his arranger, John Gill, who also plays in the band, we sort of stepped back another few decades and said, what might this have sounded like in a pit orchestra in the, in the Harrigan and Hart and Brame era? You're talking about the 1870s. And we did what we, we felt would be a fairly decent reconstruction of what it would have sounded like then, with the feel, however, of today as well. Because the, the intent was never, when I started making this, this CD, the intent was never to reconstruct anything, but to more or less get the flavour of what it was like and then, and then do it as if it would have been done today by Harrigan. Well, why don't we hear how it sounds on your CD yeah. with Vince Giordano's band behind you. So this is uh, The Mulligan Guards. Condescension, we'll tell you what we know Of marching in the Mulligan Guard From the Sligo Ward below Our captain's name was Hussey A Tipperary man He carried his sword like a Russian duke Whenever he took command Forward! March! We shouldered guns And marched and marched away From Baxter Street We marched to Avenue A our fifes and drums, so sweetly they did play As we marched, marched, marched the Mulligan Guard No, no this song is about, what, a neighbourhood militia? A neighbourhood militia, because after the, the Civil War there were a lot of people dressed up and nowhere to go uh, and the whole idea of having militias that would go and do target shooting uh, really proliferated in New York. Dickens wrote a lot about it. He was appalled by the number of people who clogged up the arterial routes of Manhattan any given Sunday. Basically an excuse to have a big picnic 
and uh, drink a lot. And a lot of these target companies, as they were called, were ethnically uh, and fraternally based and, and often based in particular neighbourhoods. So they were very competitive. So the whole idea was, was really to, to, uh, to go uh, and do some target shooting. But that somehow got overwhelmed by the idea of having a big party, lots of drunkenness. Um, it was a very New York, a very urban New York. So this was satire. Uh, from the very start. And the strange thing about it was that the song became the most popular song uh, ever for for, uh, Ed Harrigan and David Brame. And it was taken up by almost all the military bands. Uh, John Philip Seuss's band played it. Gilmore's band played it. He was even played in all the British regimental bands. And Kipling, in his novel Kim, uh, even mentions a regimental British band in India playing the Mulligan Guard. He even quotes the first chorus. I doubt if that old imperialist would have known it was written by an Irish-American as a (laughs) send-up of the military. (laughs) Mick Maloney speaking with Terry Gross in 2006. He died last week at the age of 77. After a break, we'll listen to portions of their 2009 interview. This is Fresh Air. We're listening to our interviews with musician and folklorist Mick Maloney, who died last week at the age of 77. He spoke with Terry Gross in 2009 after the release of his CD, If It Wasn't for the Irish and the Jews which featured Tin Pan Alley collaborations between Irish and Jewish songwriters. They began with the title track, written in 1912 by William Jerome, who was Irish, and Gene Schwartz, who was Jewish. Maloney sings on the track and is accompanied by Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks. Just returned from Europe, I've seen London and Paris And I'm glad to get back home to Yankee land In fact, the little USA looks better now to me It's the real place for the real folks understand But still I often sit and think What would this country do If it hadn't men like Rosenstein and Hughes? We'd surely have a kingdom, there'd be no democracy If it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews What would this great Yankee nation Really, really ever do If it wasn't for a Levy A Monaghan or Donahue Where would we get our policemen why, Uncle Sam would have the blues Without the Pats and Isidores There'd be no big department stores If it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews Mick Maloney, welcome back to Fresh Air. Was the pairing between Irish and Jewish songwriters different than any other pairing in Tin Pan Alley? I think it was because, uh, first of all, the Irish had dominated American um, popular music, really, for the whole of the 19th century. You think of major figures like Thomas Moore. You think of Dan Emmett, who wrote Dixie. You think of Stephen Foster, who would have been Scotch-Irish. You think of Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore, who wrote When Johnny Comes Marching Home. You think of Victor Herbert, who introduced operetta to America. Uh, The list goes on and on. Um, And uh, I think the Irish would have come from a performing arts culture where music and dance and, and and, uh, and storytelling were always highly valued. And suddenly you have a new uh, immigration from a very similar culture, a culture that, uh, where it's, it's very vocal, uh, it's very much involved in the arts, it's a diaspora like the Irish. They're not going back to, to where they came from for perhaps different reasons. And, uh, and they, take to, they take to the stage uh, you know, right away. Uh, and and in, in the 1890s, you see uh, people like Al Dubin arriving in, in Philadelphia. He's only three at the time, and uh, and he, he won't go to school. He wants to be a songwriter. And music was de 
déclassé, was on the fringes, and, and both the Irish and the Jews at various times were on the fringes of society. Uh, and I think uh, the entertainment world, the sports world perhaps in another way, it's been a place where people who can't get on so easily in other uh, aspects of life that they, they tend to gravitate towards those. So I think it was a very good mix. You mentioned Al Dubin, and he's you know a, a Jewish lyricist who worked a lot with Harry Warren in, in the 20s and 30s. And he wrote lyrics for like Busby Berkeley musicals, lyrics for songs like Lullaby of Broadway, 42nd Street, I Only Have Eyes for You, We're in the Money. But he also writes this like Irish song that you have featured on your CD. It's called Twas Only an Irishman's Dream. And the lyric includes, oh, the shamrocks are blooming on Broadway. Every girl is an Irish Colleen. And it's so f- funny to think of this like Jewish songwriter writing from the point of view of an Irish-American who's like dreaming that everything in Manhattan is really Irish. Um, on one level, it's really phony because he's writing from a point of view that he doesn't have. <laughs> he's not hes not Irish-American. He's Jewish-American. His story is so different. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that the song would mean any less to the people who hear it. Well, what I discovered at first, I thought it was complete, absolute nonsense. You know, growing up in Ireland and growing up in the rain and digging potatoes, all these Tin Pan Alley songs, they had no, they had no connection with the, uh, any kind of reality that, that I would have uh, known in Ireland growing up. But, you know, uh, my attitude to all that changed. Uh, in 1995, I was part of a team of uh, a lot of uh, Irish academics, historians, poets, writers and musicians who travelled across America commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Great Irish Famine. Uh, and uh, I was in places that I hadn't been before, Peoria, Illinois, uh, Moline, uh, Des Moines, to mention but many. And after the talk, people in their 80s came up to me uh, in shock and said, now we know for the first time why our grandparents never talked about Ireland. And, you know, the penny dropped right away um, that these people were, were trauma victims. They were refugees. And, uh, you know, my friends and colleagues um, uh, tell me that there's the same uh, kind of survivor guilt among Holocaust victims. It would have been that perhaps among the Irish what are you going to tell your children that you guarded your food supply when you watched your neighbours die or other members of your family die that you were one of the lucky ones who came to America and suddenly I realised why Tin Pan Alley these images which are invented images of kind of an imagined wholeness uh, why they were attracted to people it was good stuff it was really good stuff. There was nothing bad about it. And I'm sure people realize that, you know, this was kind of a, this was a, kind of a fantasy world. But, you know, uh, we, we, need, we need good things to think about and, and good things to tell our children and our grandchildren. So I think that they were, they were catering for a market. They were, they were expert craftsmen. Uh, they knew how to construct songs. The melodies are beautiful. The lyrics are clever. And it was only an Irishman's dream, I think, is one of the great songs of, of, of Tin Pan Alley and one of Al Dubin's greatest. Mick, I'm going to ask you to perform uh, an excerpt of one of the songs on your CD called The Old Bog Road. And I think this is a really good example of the, you know, I'm in New York, but I'm yearning for my home in Ireland kind of song. And uh, it's not a song I've heard before. Um, So tell us the story behind this one and why you chose it. Yes, a song I heard, in fact, far too many times before. Every bad tenor in my <laughs> native Limerick, when he got drunk, uh, felt obliged to sing it and inflicted on the whole population. So I hated the song with a passion. Uh, I always thought it was a Tin Pan Alley song from Broadway. And in a sense, it was. 
because it was written by a woman called Teresa Brayton, who was a poet, and she was married uh, in her, her maiden name is Boyle. She was married and living in Broadway and, and, and a real strong sense of being detached from home and meeting people who never had gone home and couldn't go home. And she wrote it and the music was put on later. Uh, but my great mentor, Frank Hart, sang it with a mournful style, not melodramatic at all. And I suddenly realized the beauty of the song and all my resistance went away. And it goes, My feet are here on Broadway This blessed harvest morn But oh the ache that's in my heart For the spot where I was born My weary hands are blistered Through work in cold and heat But oh to swing aside today Through fields of Irish wheat Had I the chance to journey back or own a king's abode. I'd sooner see the hawthorn tree by the old bog And growing up in Ireland, did this song make no sense to you? Because, like, were you thinking, exactly what are you yearning for? Well, it made sense... On one level, because almost everybody I knew in Ireland had emigrants in England or America. So the idea of being away from home, of being in an exile, as we called it, uh, culturally, uh, that made sense. But it was kind of schmaltzy, you know. And uh, when you're young, you're not nostalgic, generally speaking. You want to get on with things. And I was more interested in listening to the Beatles and the Rockin' and and the Rolling Stones uh, than I was listening to the Old Bog Road. Uh, then when I came to America, my attitude to to the song changed. And the more years I spent here, the more I can empathize with those people who never could go home. Well, Mick Maloney, it's been great to talk with you again. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Mick Maloney speaking with Terry Gross in 2009. He died last week at the age of 77. At the time of his death, he was working on a film called Two Roads Diverged, about how Irish-Americans and African-Americans in the 19th and 20th century America found common ground through music and dance. Green grows the laurel, soft falls the dew. Sorry, my love, I'm parted with you. Sorry, my love, contented must be. She loves another Far better than me I passed my love's window Early and late The look that she gave me It made my heart break The look that she gave me With ten thousand kills She loves another but I love her still Green grows the laurel Soft falls the dew Sorry, my love I'm parted with you Sorry, my love Contented must be She loves another Far better than me Coming up, can Tucker reviews Beyonce's first studio album in six years? This is Fresh Air. The first new Beyonce studio album in six years is here, and it's called Renaissance. 
The pop star says the 16 tracks were recorded during the pandemic. Our rock critic Ken Tucker says while the music is dense with allusions to different eras of pop music, Beyonce's performances have a lightness and agility that gives the project an often thrilling energy. Here's Ken's review. Break My Soul, the first single from Beyonce's new album, Renaissance. Break My Soul was released a few weeks before the album, and with its lyric about escaping the deadening drudgery of 9-to-5 work, was widely interpreted as Beyonce's take on the pandemic-inspired Great Resignation. Little did we know that what was to follow was a whole album about the freedom of escapism. I'm one of one. I'm number one. I'm the only one. Don't even waste your time trying to compete with me. No one else in this world can think like me. I'm twisted, how contradicted. Keep him addicted. Lies on his lips, I lick it. Unique. That's what you are. Stilettos kicking vintage crystal off the bar. Category, bad. I'm the bar. Alien superstar. Whip, whip. I'm too classy for this world. Forever I'm that girl. Feature diamonds and baby. That's Alien Superstar, over whose clattering beats Beyonce applies a layer of her patented positive thinking, only half joking that she's, quote, too classy for this world. Alien Superstar gives you an idea of the way many songs here are constructed around rhythms and riffs that pulse and throb while Beyoncé's vocal soars atop the music. The best example of this is the album's longest track, called Virgo's Groove, as Beyoncé croons over a languid, sneaky beat. Six minutes plus, Virgo's groove is at once very contemporary and very 1980s. Its sound owes something to the Michael Jackson, Quincy Jones albums of that era, and its hypnotic hook reminds me of Lakeside's great 1980 hit, Fantastic Voyage. Now listen to the way Beyonce rolls it back further, to the 70s, and nods to Donna Summer's I Feel Love on the song Summer Renaissance.
elsewhere on Renaissance, Beyonce offers the song Cuff It, a thick slice of R&B that recalls Funkadelic's Not Just Knee Deep, and on another standout track, Move, she enlists dance music pioneer Grace Jones with some emphasis on Detroit techno music. There are some breathtaking moments on Renaissance which are all the more impressive for the way Beyoncé delivers them so casually. Listen to the way she almost buries this gorgeously fluid burst of phrasing toward the end of the song Pure Honey. Lesser artists would build a whole hit single around a verse that Beyoncé just tosses off. You know it's Friday night and I'm ready to drop throw me them keys, baby let's go. Except for the song title, America Has a Problem, and a fleeting reference to the electoral defeat of Donald Trump, there's little of the social commentary that was laced through her previous album, 2016's Lemonade. But the escapist aesthetic of Renaissance is its own kind of statement, Beyoncé's way of asserting the primacy of black musical forms throughout American pop history. And Renaissance places Beyoncé at the very center of pop music right now. Rock critic Ken Tucker reviewed Beyoncé's new album called Renaissance. On Monday's show, actor Melanie Linsky, she's nominated for an Emmy for her leading role in the Showtime series Yellow Jackets. The show tells the story of a girls' soccer team that went down in a plane crash in 1996 and had to survive in the wilderness for over a year. Linsky's other films include Heavenly Creatures, Up in the Air, The Informant, and Don't Look Up. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support by Joyce Lieberman, Julian Hertzfeld, and Al Banks. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs>